Unbound. Unbound. This is Unbound, the podcast that tries to nudge the boundaries of philosophy. And this is Kay. And Giuseppe. And with you and a bunch of other friends at the new school, we are going to push the boundaries of philosophy. Are you ready? Let's begin our journey to become Unbound. Hello, everyone. This is Unbound, the podcast that tries to redefine the boundaries of philosophy. In every episode, we invite a guest to discuss philosophy with us. But before introducing our guest, let me introduce our other host for today. Hello, Kay. Hi, I'm Kay Estens, a master's student in philosophy at the New School. And I'm Madison Gamba, a master's student also in philosophy at the New School. And our guest today is Professor Gina Luria Walker, who is a professor in women's studies at the New School and the director of the Center for the New Historia. And uh, Gina, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do? Yes, thank you. I'm very glad to be here with you. My work for almost 50 years has been discovering, recovering, and reclaiming earlier women. And that is now a global initiative. And I formed uh, the New Historia, not the Center for the New Historia, at the New School as an umbrella organization for a variety of initiatives, including um, an archive of New Historia female biographies in the form of schemas, which are different than traditional biographies, which have always since the ancients been gendered male, and that promote women's transformations, resistance to misogyny, and intellectual authority. And that can then be, trans- can then be um, translated into data sets that is networked sets of women's lives for our immersive platform that we are developing that allows one to search women's lives for themselves, but even more within the context of networks of other women. And the point of that is, and what I'm always most interested in, is women have been slowly recovered in history and in every discipline. But I think it's more interesting now that we have the, the digital capabilities and the knowledge about earlier women to look at women in groups so that we begin to see that even in different ages and cultures and languages and knowledge ordering systems, that there may be unforeseen convergences between and among earlier women. Thank you for telling us about that. At what point in your life did you decide that you wanted to dedicate your career to exploring the past and trying to liberate women and inspire other women and other people, for that matter, to think in these ways and to rethink our understanding of women and gender expression and the ways in which we treat other people who have different identities. What inspired you to decide to embark on this as a life and as a dedication? I grew up in Brooklyn and I read everything 
that I could at the Brooklyn Public Library at Grand Army Plaza. And at some point, I found the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And when I read the first book, Little House in the Big Woods, I was so astonished to hear the voice of another girl who lived quite a time before me that I wrote her a letter. Wow. And she, I was six, and she wrote back to me, as she did to all the children who wrote to her. And I think I got inoculated then, that there was a world that I couldn't see that wasn't even necessarily in books in the library about women that seemed to me like another planet, like the other side of the moon. And then um, I was very uncomfortable in high school because, I mean, I had fun and I learned, mm -hmm. but I saw that mostly I had to teach myself because the teachers were well-trained and very well-meaning and very encouraging, but they didn't address some of the issues that I couldn't even articulate then, but that I walked around um, puzzled about and even sorrowing over. Why did we read so few women? Why did we know so little about the women that we did read? Why was it for example, when we read Shakespeare in high school, why wasn't there a female Shakespeare? I mean, was it only men who were born to create new knowledge? I, I couldn't believe that. And my parents were also uh, very committed communists. And my father was blacklisted in 1952. And I went to a communist camp and I went to a socialist camp, and this was really the kind of steady metronome beating of their lives. And I didn't have the concept of a knowledge ordering system then, but I knew that what I was learning and being told I needed to be a soldier for didn't really make sense to me. I certainly believed in the people. I certainly believed in peace. And I certainly believed that, as my father said from the time I was almost an infant, that race was the cancer of American society. And in fact, at school, I went to um, a private school that my mother helped found with a group of other people in Brooklyn. In the 19, I think in 1936. And the purpose of that school was to teach children how not to be fascists, if you can imagine. And I certainly didn't want to be a fascist. And I thought I knew what a fascist was. But I also didn't want to give my babysitting money that I had worked so hard to earn so that I could buy a modern guitar because I was a folk singer. I didn't want to give that money for my closest friend's father's bail, and yet I was told to, and so I did. So maybe that was a failing on my part, but I, 
I wondered about all this. And um, when I got to Barnard, um, I loved, again, the learning. But it was at a time when <clears throat> Barnard girls, as we were called, really we were called barnyard girls, weren't allowed to take all the courses at Columbia College. So for example, I wasn't allowed to take um, courses with Eric Bentley or Moses Hottis or other great greats. What I was allowed to do, and I don't know what prompted me to do this, was to get special, special, special permission to take two philosophy courses. And I think in retrospect, they probably changed my life. The first course was with a man who was um, a Jewish refugee, and his name was Ernst Nagel. And he was one of the grand men of analytic philosophy. And this was an introductory course there were two girls in it. The other girl was very, very, very smart and a philosophy major. I, because this is what Jewish girls from Brooklyn mostly did, I was an English major. And Professor Nagel was very much a hair professor from the German universities. And everybody had to go meet with him privately to discuss their essay for the semester. And when I walked into his office, he was sitting behind a very big desk, and I've always been little. And somewhere almost obscuring one half of his face was a big human skull. And I kind of blinked, but I sat down, and he had a kind of bemused smile on his face. I know it wasn't an introductory course, it was a course in epistemology, because I thought it'd be really interested, interesting to know about knowledge and its formation. And somehow or other, when he asked me what I wanted to do my essay on, I said, I would like to make up my own epistemological system. I don't know how I got the words out of my mouth. I don't know that I knew that what I meant. And he said, yes. And I got an A minus. But going home on the subway afterwards that day to Brooklyn, I thought that the skull where the brain resides was that of a knowing man and not of me. And then I took a course with David Sadorsky, who was one of um, Nagel's students and became very prominent himself. And that was in 19th and 20th century philosophy. And that was less stimulating and challenging than Nagel's course. But of course, we read No Women. I don't think a woman's name was mentioned. And some of the students told me that 
Sadowski would draw the, the shape of my body behind my back when I left class. So it was uncomfortable, but of course it was fascinating. And what I remember is thinking that thought itself is an experience. That's what T.S. Eliot says about John Donne, that thought for Donne was an experience. It modified his sensibilities. I think that's what happened to me. I mean, I I didn't think, I, I, I didn't even imagine I could be a philosopher. I had had these sort of fantasies of being a conductor like Leonard Bernstein, but I didn't want to be Leonard Bernstein and there were no women conductors. So, you know, I was an English major and wonderful teachers. They let me do pretty much anything I wanted and I learned and learned. But I, I knew that I was an interloper. And now I know that women always are and they always have been. Do you feel like there were mentors specifically that were female that helped inspire you or guide you? In your journey to now? Well, yes. I had a classics teacher who read the opening day of class, read um, the first lines of the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek. And I thought, oh, well, okay, that's heaven. But of course, I, did, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it never occurred to me that I could learn ancient Greek. Um, and I had some thrilling moments in English classes when I watched my mind spiral out. And it, you know, I'm sure yourselves, it teaches excitement about a student's contributions are very, very important. Um, and then I went across the street from Columbia, excuse me, from Columbia, from Barnard. I just crossed Broadway and got my master's at Columbia. And when the very hoary uh, graduate advisor, a male professor with a beard, asked me in my intake interview what I wanted to study, I said, and again, I have no idea where this came from, really. I said, I want to study a self-aware woman on the edge of enlightenment. He said, like who? And I said, Jane Austen, because I felt that she was a deep, deep thinker. And he said, there's nothing more to be done on Austen and women's lives are not fit for academic study. So they, he put me in the 18th century, uh, prose seminar, and I did um, a master's thesis on James Boswell, whose journals were just then being discovered, recovered, and reclaimed by Frederick Pottle and his group of researchers and editors at Yale. And so what was interesting about that was to, was to see what had to be done to reclaim a male figure you know, lots of context and lots of footnotes and lots of biographies. So even though I, I hated that, because, you know, Boswell was such a misogynist, 
he, um, he had syphilis all the time and gave it to his wife, that it was disappointing. And so I didn't want to stay at Columbia, which was riddled with misogyny. And in the last session I had with the pro-seminar director, he said that I had done very well and I was getting a B plus, but that he hoped that I wasn't going to bother getting a PhD. And he said, and I say this without any immodesty, he said, you're too pretty to get a PhD. Mm. Go home and get married. That's so sad. Well, I cried all the way during a one-hour trip to Brooklyn on the subway. And then I applied to NYU. And I had the great good fortune to be assigned to a man named Kenneth Neal Cameron, who was involved with the restitution of Percy Bysshe Shelley in the 19th century um, as a thinker and not just a pretty, blonde, angelic playboy, although he was something of a devil, too. <laughs> um, and when I told Cameron what I wanted to do, he, he said, well, who do you want to work on? And I said, Jane Austen. He said, you can certainly work on Jane Austen. But before you decide, go to the Carl H. Forsheimer Library on 41st Street. Tell them that I've sent you and ask about Mary Hayes. This was then a very beautiful private library in an office building uh, between Madison and Vanderbilt. And I did what Cameron said and they showed me what they had, including manuscript materials. I had to put on white gloves and read the manuscript materials at a, a desk line covered with green bays. And what I found changed my life. So I did, I learned what I call feminist historical recovery by recovering Hayes who was a very, very difficult woman. I don't know if you had a chance to read anything that I sent you. I did, yeah. You know, but she was so different from Jane Austen that it, it scared me. And I found a cache of correspondence, many of the men involved from the radical group in England, in the 1790s and beyond in Mary Wollstonecraft, etc. And the Forsheimer Library sent me to London and to look at the materials. And by the time I got back, the Forsheimer was in a bidding war with the British Library and Sotheby's was the go-between. So the Forsheimer Library bought the materials for a lot of money at the time. I didn't get them until I was finished with my dissertation. But then again, I saw what I always say to my students is the romance of research. I mean, you're a detective, you are a negotiator, and nobody's been there before you. So I just made up what I thought I should learn about Mary Hayes. And I got the Founders Day Award at NYU. And the other thing that happened was that through the director of 
It was on the library, a man named Donald H. Ryman. I was introduced to the two men who were founding Garland Publishing, and they were doing a very extraordinary thing of using um, the new facsimile technology. And so they asked me to put together a group of books by and about women on the cusp of the 19th century um, for a series, which I called The Feminist Controversy in England, 1788 to 1810. 1788 is when Wollstonecraft wrote her first um, book, Mary of Fiction, which is autobiographical. And 1810 is when Jane Austen first published. And for my dissertation, I read 500 books. Which wow. I, which I thought is what I had to do. And I wrote introductions to the 44 works in 89 volumes that were in the feminist controversy. And it really sold. You read 500 books? Yep. How long did that take you to do? Because I can't even read one book without getting distracted. <laughs> well, I'm a very fast reader. I'm very slow. So some people like you are very lucky. Well, yes and no, because... <laughs> There are things I miss, and then I have to go back. Mm -hmm. But what reading fast allows me to do is to get a sense of something. And one of the things I got a sense of in these 500 books was that women were writing about the same things, no matter what their political positions or nationalities or age or social class. And what were they writing about? What do you think? Mm. What do women always write about? Mm -hmm. About, what did you say? I said men. Yeah. <laughs> men. Yeah. Well, their frustrations with misogyny. Sir, about men and men as teachers and men as lovers. And mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking romance. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But these were... Each and all women who were using what had the form of the novel and, and tracts and treatises that had emerged earlier in the 18th century when women were among the best-selling authors, at least in England, they, they understood that as the idea of the rights of man spread through the culture, that it had to be applied to what Wollstonecraft calls the wrongs of women. And so they wrote about misogyny, suffering. They pressed for education. They wanted laws to protect them. They wanted not to have to give up their children if they were convicted of a crime, including adultery. They wanted to be able to be economically independent. Some of them, like Wollstonecraft and Hayes, pressed for what Wollstonecraft calls called a revolution in female manners, so that girls and women be seen as capable of epistemological authority. And it's what women always write about. Some of them, like Mary Hayes, wrote against the slave trade. It's right there. And they also wrote about themselves. 
And so I grouped the books in a couple of categories. And that was really where I, I understood that what had begun with Laura Ingalls Wilder was much larger than my personal response. And also that it was kind of ubiquitous through time and around the globe and across cultures. Now, I have to tell you this piece because you're asking me about a female life, mine. Mm -hmm. And I did go home, as the Columbia professor said, and I did get married because that's what I was under terrific pressure from my family to do. And in the next few years, um, I worked very hard and I did the Garland series and I did other things and I wrote a book with a colleague at Rutgers where I was teaching called Every Woman for which Toni Morrison was the editor and for a while I think for several I think for six months it was the best-selling trade paperback from Random House and that of course was very thrilling but at the same time I was discovering that my young husband, who was a medical student, was an abusive alcoholic. Mm. And I received my doctorate from NYU in June of 72, and my son was born in September. And I became an, an assistant professor at Rutgers, and then I suffered. I loved the teaching, I loved the scholarship, but privately I was really in hell. Mm -hmm. And so that sapped much of my energies. Now, I couldn't help but being productive because this is about one of my great passions. Right. <clears throat> and that, as you may know yourselves, just keeps you going. So, so eventually things became so severe that I had to leave my husband, and he um, manipulated away our son, who was then eight and a half. I stayed as long as I could with my son. And then there was a next level of harrowing and hell, because I had to leave. I was separated from my son, which was agony, although something that many women over time have experienced. Mm -hmm. And I left my academic life for 20 years. So in my way, I used the skills that I had developed in my scholarship and teaching to do other things. I met my, my real husband. Eventually I reclaimed my son, got remarried, this mm -hmm. time for real, have a complex, wonderful family with three adult stepsons and grandchildren, but I never gave up. And somebody suggested to me, just as my son was entering Columbia College, that I apply to the new school for any kind of teaching. So I did. And first I was an adjunct, um, and I taught a course called Mind to Life, Thinking About Women Through Time which is always what I'm thinking about. <laughs> and a lot of people 
registered for it. And then within the next year, I was asked to become an assistant dean and on and on. And then I became the chair of what's now the SPE, Department of Social Sciences. Spent 10 years putting that on a rigorous academic footing. And during that time, I returned to my scholarship on Hayes, published my monograph, which I hadn't been able to do, and began to collect more women's lives and more colleagues. And then in 2005, 2009, I was uh, coincidentally invited to, to a conference called New Directions in Jane Austen Studies. Oh, wow. So much for the Columbia Graduate School advisor many years before. And I gave a paper. And at the end of that conference, it was held at Chawton House Library. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a women's library and conference center um, housed in the housing grounds that belonged to Jane Austen's older brother, Edward, who was married to an aristocratic woman. And in Chawton House, there is a library which has Lady Elizabeth Austen's copies of the six volumes of a female biography. And at the end of the conference, one of the um, people in the Chawton House Library Editions Board asked me if I would do a new, the first scholarly new edition of Mary Hayes's female biography, first published in six volumes in uh, 1803, which I knew about, but it's the one, the one set of writings by Hayes that I barely looked at and I thought was terribly Victorian and stupid. That's how arrogant one can be. And I was thrilled to do it. And then I very quickly I saw that I was going to have to put a team together of scholars because Hayes includes, we think, we're still not sure, entries of various um, lengths in the six volumes for 302 earlier women. And I had always followed the scholarship in, in other fields. I mean, I long ago gave up thinking I was an English major. Um, and I put together, in the next nine to 12 months, I put together a collaborative of over 200 scholars who worked on, on not on revising, but on uh, annotating what Hayes had done. Mm -hmm. And we spent five years on that. It was an extraordinary experience, you know, because there were, there were scholars, male and female, from 18 countries, 164 institutions, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et and what I really saw as I sat and read the thousands of annotations, I mean, I was the editor, I had to read them all, mm -hmm. was that the new knowledge that the scholars brought to these individual women appear to constitute a new narrative of the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I let that sort of sit with me for a while. And I um, collaborated on two collections of essays, 
coming out of that. But what I saw and what became the new historia was that we can no longer accept conventional and canonical knowledge ordering systems, mostly by, for, and about men, Mm -hmm. to reclaim women. And that until we reclaim women on their own terms, and in terms that are meaningful to us, really not much is going to change because we're ignorant about women. We're ignorant about ourselves. We're still not taught what there is available to us about early women. We, we don't have a past. We have pieces of the past. And every once in a while, a very accomplished historian will write a history of women in this, a history of that. They are almost always uninflected by knowledge-ordering systems with a feminist dimension. Do you think this ignorance about ourselves that you just mentioned due to the lack of knowledge or the, the lack of transparency, if you will, about the history of women and the history of war- the world and this just total way of ignoring women's history and ignoring their place, do you think that affects how women understand their identities to this day and how we understand our place in the world? and? How do you think that ignorance affects women today? Because that's a really intriguing point. My observation, and I find evidence for this pretty much every day, is that women have been taught not to claim their capacities for epistemological authority. That they have been taught not to think of themselves as part of women rather than individual woman and that this has really hampered us very very seriously I think there's one I know there's wonderful work going on I'm sure the two of you are doing marvelous work as my students do fascinating and profound work but there's got to be an insistence that this gets out into the world, that it gets into syllabi, that mm-hmm. even the great male professors learn some of this, yep. that boys and girls are taught these figures in the second grade. Yep. Because otherwise we are perpetuating the the distortions of women that the obdurate presence of historical misogyny has always insisted on i mean when i started teaching a course at the new school that i wanted to teach which was you know sort of about what i then called learned ladies <laughs> I was afraid. I, I was terrified because who was I to, to make this up? And then the student responses were so profound and encouraging. I knew the students told me that I was changing their lives. Can I ask a question? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so I have a very similar experience to what you're, what you've uh, expressed about, you know, going to grad school and sort of being turned towards reading men and this emphasis on sort of an emasculation process of women where they have to learn to about men and to think like men and to write like men. Um, so I'm interested in what you're saying about how learning about female intellectuals can change you know, how people think, but also maybe the political conditions that people live in. Um, and also what you said about the new school is most of the positive reaction from students. Do you feel like the new school as a structure supports your work? And yeah, I just wanted to talk about a little bit how intellectualism itself and uh, learning about women intellectuals or female intellectuals can help create more female intellectuals, I suppose. Well, I think you can't dream up a form of identity until you've seen it. You can wish for it. You can hope for it. You can sort of feel your way around it. But it's very important. There are few intellectual women that I have known through my life. Not many. And I know that I'm very conscious of this that I am the emblem of what I teach. <laughs> yeah. That I use big words. That I dress beautifully out of respect to the people I'm teaching and out of respect to the women of the past who are always with me. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, sometimes I turn around and I see a long, I see legions of them. Yeah. But, and it's only not lonely because there are now so many more scholars doing this kind of work and people who are not scholars but who are other things who are catching on that this and changes in and work on race, I believe, are the two most important enterprises of our time. And I don't think you can separate them. So in 2017, I was called in by marketing and communications and they said they wanted to make a kind of university initiative informed about this. We called it the New Historia. Um, and Historia, though it's the word for history in Spanish, I loved because it's got a feminine ending. And I've held New Historia Symposia every year since then, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, there, there is support. And then two years before the centennial, so that's in 2017, I said to Ellen Freeberg, I don't know if you know her, she's the... Um, Associate Dean for Faculty at NSSR, and a very, probably my closest friend at the university. And I said to her, well, where are the women in this centennial? And she said, I don't know. So we started working two years in advance. Yeah. And we were given some money, not a lot, but almost enough. And I imagine neither of you went, but last October, we put on the most divine production about 
women at the new school whom we had discovered. And the most extraordinary thing was that we discovered that there were 10 founding mothers to the institution. And everybody knew about a few of them, but most of them were hidden under the names of their husbands, which is the way they signed the founding documents. Yeah. And so with some terrific students, we began researching this. And I am just insisting that this go on because it's not only John Dewey who was formative for the new school. He left after a year. Right. It was also the women. One of the women, it turns out, was the architect on the first new school building in 1918, 1919. Nobody knew that. No. On Ninth Avenue. Wow. What's now Lincoln Terrace, I think. So one of my students is hopefully going to work on that. I mean, and the woman isn't even, couldn't be trained as an architect. So she wasn't called the architect. I see, yeah. And with Ellen Freeberg, we recovered Frida Wunderlich. I don't know if you heard of her, but she was the one woman among the, with the 10 men who was on the Mayflower voyage from Germany in 1933. Mm -hmm. We don't hear about her. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was extraordinary for me to work with a group of women faculty and students and administrators at the new school to discover and to put together for the very first time ever the pictures of these 10 women. They'd never been put together. Yeah. And what they were about, they were wealthy, they were elite, they were well-connected, and some of my colleagues of hers said, oh, well, they're just debutantes. But I don't accept that knowledge ordering system anymore. They were women who put their money, their time, their hearts, their souls into trying to forge a co-educational institution when maybe only Antioch or Connecticut, not Connecticut, but Antioch was co-educational. And they were part of what I call progressive feminism. And they were not just interested in suffrage, because through the 19th century, picking up from Hayes and Wollstonecraft and the other women of the revolutionary era, era like Romain de Bruges and others, these women, what did they want? First of all, after the Napoleonic Wars, they wanted peace. Second of all, they wanted education. And it took them a hundred years to get to the first classes in the great universities in Europe, and then in America and England. And they wanted emancipation broadly construed, which of course included suffrage. But as some of them said, "How? why do I want to vote if I don't know what I'm voting for? And because of the First World War, which decimated Europe, of course, 
they became involved in really genuine international women's movements. And that's where Frida von der Leek earned her stripes. And even Hannah Arendt, Ellen and I taught a class a year ago in the spring called Recovering Hannah Arendt. I mean, we're taught to understand Arendt in one way, but one can also look at her through the prism of female biography because she was a woman. So, go on. I was just going to say, it's interesting also that even though she taught at the new school, we don't have, we don't teach about her as often as we teach about, say, Hegel in the philosophy department. Um, Exactly. So, from my perspective, it's same old, same old. It's what's different is that nobody is stopping us from doing this work. And I can now sometimes offer my courses in the philosophy department mm-hmm. and in the book studies. Right. But I was going to say that your course on enlightened exchanges is the only course offering that can be counted for the philosophy requirement for 18th, 19th century that includes females. I know. And how do you make that, that makes me feel? I don't know. I mean, it's great that you're doing it because without you, what would we have, you know? But also, it's very frustrating that other people can't, you know, adapt your work and incorporate it into their syllabi as well, for instance. Well, you know, academics mainly live in their own silos. And I'm unusual in that I don't want to live in a silo. And that I'm engaged in an intellectual world of knowledge production that focuses on new figures and new knowledge and doesn't adhere to conventional either knowledge ordering systems or disciplines or particular disciplinary conventions. And it's taken me a very long time not to be too scared about it. And some of that not being scared, it comes from the enthusiasm of the students at the new school? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I watch people come alive. In my classes, everybody chooses his or her own independent project. We, um, I see it as very collaborative, although I'm the professor. (laughs) But that's just because I've been doing this for a long time. And what I learn from my students, I hope, is commensurate what they learn from me. Because for me, this is all, it's all testing the boundaries of knowledge. And I'm in touch with and very close with some of the women in the world, you know, who are developing new narratives in philosophy and Project Vox and other things. And it's thrilling. It's thrilling because they are very in advance. And you see, we've all had to learn the men so that we are always evaluating how we approach the women. And one of my favorite colleagues who teaches in Turkey, a woman named Sandrine Berger, who is the um, editorial 
director of the New Historia, just published a, a book with, I don't know, seven, eight other scholars, men and women from all over, called The Wollstonecraftian Mind. So it's focusing on what Mary Wollstonecraft thought and the context of these and, you know, the historical um, ripples. But it's about a woman's mind, and that's very hard to come by. Yeah, I'm very interested in the concept that there is a different kind of writing that women do or can do than men do or can do. And I know part of that has to do with just experience and being able to express a certain kind of experience. But is there something other than that that you would say is some sort of essential characteristic of women's writing? Well, <clears throat> women are always interlopers in male knowledge writing systems and in, in the cultures of teaching and learning. I mean, we know now that women were never included, beginning with the ancients and even a little before, in the, in the accepted cultures of teaching and learning, so that women were always on their own. And I'm just participating in a podcast from the New Historia called Knowing Women. <clears throat> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and our first episode, which we've just finished, um, is the woman who taught Socrates the story of Diotima. And what it tracks is her philosophy, as Plato tells it about us, and then the absolute denial of her historical authenticity in the 19th century when the universities are becoming codified. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's just so much to do. And I'm also, it, it's not certain yet, but I'm in discussions with um, global editor of history and classics at Rutledge in England about a journal called, about starting a journal called Feminist Feminist Historical Recovery. Wow, awesome. Is there a way that we can get access to everything that you do? Do you have a webpage? What I've never had is money. <laughs> so I'm I'm on my I'm on academic leave this semester. And right. So I've been writing a lot of grants, but we've only just gotten a web page. It's just a holding page. So fundraising for this is very, very important because, because I'm a visionary. And the pieces of what I see as the new Astoria have been with me for quite some years now. And I, I just somehow keep things going. But, you know... Nothing's really gelled yet, except the collaboratives of scholars. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that one or two new school graduate students will work with me on the journal if it, if it comes to pass. And students are crucial. I could not have done this without students, really any of it. Now, Gina, can I ask you a question about women? Because before we briefly discussed when Kay asked a question about women writing and certain qualities you can detect in women writing. This is something Kay and I were talking about before we started recording. We were talking about terminology and the controversy and, controversy and discussion and just importance 
nowadays that we see in paying more keen attention to words we use, especially words we use to express our identities and gender and sexual orientation or whatever it is that you want to express about oneself and the res- the importance of respecting um, others' wishes and how they want to be addressed and whatnot. And we keep using the word women and that's something we were really interested in. The conflation um, of the words women and female, whether they should be synonymous, whether they should be categorized in different boxes, We wanted to ask you how you feel about terminology and the importance of words and language and if in your work or in your lecturing or in your understanding of this whole topic, you distinguish female from woman or you have per se your own definition of woman or how you explain what it means to be a woman because we understand gender as being something very personal and fluid and sort of able to be described in many different ways. So do you have your own way or do you believe that there's even a way to define what it means to be a woman given all of the social and political and historical implications? Or do you find that controversial or what do you think about the word woman and, and how it ought to be defined and what people think of it? Well, that's a loaded question. And because I deal in recovery and the past, um, I know that there are infinite ways to be a human being. Exactly. Women and men have expressed individual kinds of sexual sexualities forever and we have more and more evidence of this so that to me what I say about it is that most women through time and around the globe have self-identified as women because they they didn't have the opportunity or indeed the luxury of interrogating the meaning of these things. They acted sometimes, you know, much more than most people would think was the case on the promptings of their own humanity. I mean, that, that's how I see these things. And I think that one of the things that bothers me about identity politics and feminist theory is that I worry that they've served to separate women rather than to bring them together. Because because learning is still a dangerous thing for women. And I'm talking about learning in really in the philosophical sense, not going to Princeton and getting degrees. So um, I don't spend time on this unless students want to, because there's so much catch-up. And I don't want to exclude anybody because they haven't been trained in theoretical analysis because they could barely learn to read. So that's where I begin. So in your research, have you come across women or people that would have been considered females that we might now 
or they might now, if they had lived now, express their gender as maybe being trans, like they wore clothing that was maybe considered masculine or, because I think some of what you had been saying about intellectual life and being, you know, that women are being, that are, they're interlopers in a sense in being an intellectual, that they, in a sense, had to take on some traditionally masculine roles or traits in order to function in that way. So I'm just curious how you see that as affecting gender identity or if there have been any uh, quote-unquote females that you've studied that, you know, have expressed gender identity in their personal journals or letters that wouldn't necessarily be considered, like, that they would consider themselves women, I guess? Well, hundreds, thousands. Mm -hmm. I mean, really. Yeah. That's why it always startles me when we have to go out of our way to say that sexuality is individual and in motion. Because when, you see, that's why knowing women is so very important. And that's why having authoritative female biographies is so important. Because it's when you get into the weeds of a woman's life, which takes so much work to get to. You see things, and you can't, if you're going to be a rigorous, honest scholar, you can't make them up because you want to. Mm -hmm. But it's there. Mary Shelley, when she's a widow and Percy Shelley dies, one of the scholars on my moon, she's dead now, but she discovered that in Paris, Mary Shelley was instrumental in protecting a transgender couple. Mm. And, you know, there's a piece in today's Times, or maybe it's, well, I think in, yeah, it's today's Times in the art section about Amy Beach, the American composer. She went deaf quite young. And it's clear, you look at the picture of her, that she is figuring out her own identity. But that's what we all should be doing. Right. I mean, and that's why women need to be educated in the possibilities for themselves. That's the point of feminist historical recovery. Mm -hmm. It would be wonderful if you didn't have to ask me if I'd come across these women, but that you would know that in the panoply of women of the past, there were. And oh my goodness, I mean, a scholar at Harvard has written a very interesting book about Nzinga. Um, I'm looking for it in my shelf. Nzinga, who is um, a queen of Angola and who held off the French for um, 30 years. And she lived with another nun as lovers. In, a, in an unusual convent that she created in Angola in the 17th century. And there's testimony about what a wonderful relationship this was. So I think it's very important to understand that the world is much wider and human beings are much deeper than what prevailing knowledge ordering systems make of us because we're restricted by, by these knowledge-ordering systems. And I think one of the things we're seeing right now in this terrible time 
is the failure of modular systems. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we're living in a time right now where this is a big movement in terms of consciousness raising in relation to feminist issues, sexism, I know also racism, um, but I'm thinking in particular of Me Too, but also just the time that we're living in and how sexual politics have become a, a part of the national conversation. Well, yes, and I think it's certainly an opening up, and one can only hope that it will, that we will come out on the other side in better shape. Lots of people talking about this, you know. My grandmother used to say that sometimes you have to really empty up, empty out to fill up. So it's, we are emptying it, and it's what we're going to fill up with. The Me Too movement was, of course, very important. But really, was it a surprise that Gwyneth Paltrow, a princess because of her parents of Hollywood, got the part in Shakespeare in Love because she let Harvey Weinstein feel her up? I mean, this has been going on forever. Mm -hmm. And that those women who had enough money and enough support and social standing who could have been brave, I'm concerned about them. And the other thing that bothers me is me too. Because it's not a woman and another woman and another woman and another woman. All women use misogyny. That's the point. So, yes, I mean, when people have had enough, they've had enough. And that's always encouraging. But it's what happens next. I I think that a sense of the collective... I was interviewed for a, a documentary being made, it's probably on hold now, by a producer at Showtime about women change makers. And it's called We're All In This Together. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. On that note, how do you make men, or not make them, but how do you encourage other male professors, other male scholars to take an interest in women's history? Well, I think that is something we should talk about at another time because I'm very interested in this. I don't want my course to be the only one. I want my other courses because I teach a course called Women's Intellectual History, which is absolutely that. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of floats around in SSR. And it's not just my courses. My courses are bell winners of what can come. But there are lots of courses, and I think that's something for students to work with some of the faculty like me mm-hmm. to insist on. But it's very, 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 very hard. And that's the obduracy of misogyny. And if you walk around enraged about it, it's very understandable. I'm not a person who's quick to anger, and I know that anger can be corrosive, mm-hmm. and I know that there are other things to do, so we should think about doing them. I mean, I can't believe that mine is the only course. I know. <laughs> but then when I complain about that, I feel like I'm being, I don't know, that I'm not conforming to the system that's there, which is what people think of as being true scholarship, even though I see it as a very confined view of scholarship. And in fact, 
if you're not studying women, then I think there is a problem with that. Well, then we should have a small group that talks about knowledge ordering systems. Mm -hmm. We should have a small group that talks about curriculum. Yeah. And we have to take into consideration, you know, that all the male professors have their own Sturm und Drang, and they feel, you know, it's a culture that's all about competition. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know how many years, I've, I mean, there was one year, quite maybe eight years ago, when the students went berserk. They took a course that I taught called Women in the Making of Modernity, and then they went berserk. And one of the male professors said, why are you being berserk? And they said, because there are no other courses. He said, but you have Gina to teach you about Mary Wollstonecraft. I'm not going to learn it. They took up the work on to all the women instead of doing it themselves. Yeah. So I think um, I think that the university, although it's facing so many challenges right now, I think it may be more receptive. But it it can't be storming the the barricades because it's much more subtle than that. And I know um, students are often surprised when they get into my classes because they can like history. <laughs> And they like women's intellectual history. And that's what I think we should be talking about. And what are the causes that should you know, surround that? Yeah. I mean, there's no question. And this is why women are always interlopers. You too feel that you're interlopers just the way I do. But you're making a podcast series. <laughs> We've now met each other. I hope you will take my course in the spring. Are you doing, what course are you doing in the spring? Enlightened Exchanges. Part of what is also very important is creating a community within the class. Definitely. Because many students don't know what feminist practice and engagement really are. And that's part of what I teach. As we wrap up, would you have any final closing comments to say to those students who are getting ready to think about these things and to dive into this literature and to rethink their understanding of history and women's place in history? Do you have any motivating comments or book recommendations or just final things you want to say about anything we discussed? Well, that's a wonderful question and I really appreciate it. I think that each human being has to be his or her or their own best friend. And I recently read a book about Hypatia, and it's not completely accurate. But one of the things that the um, classicist who wrote it really emphasizes is that Hypatia was engaged, like her male contemporaries, and some of her female contemporaries in trying to live a philosophical life, really thinking about things, um, in some ways holding herself apart from the, um, the vectors of conflict and controversy and war of her time. I mean, one of the things we so need now 
is to come to some consensus about what our values are. And if a student feels alone and hungry and yearning and angry, then she should take some courses with faculty who are known to engage with these issues. And she should seek out kindred spirits, including faculty, because we can know so much now. There's so much to be known about women that we can be even more powerful. And that's what we have to figure out now. What comes next? And I hope that you will um, think about the new historia and, um, and the kinds of faculty, not in the institution, although some are, that you would like to learn from, that you would like to engage in, engage with, and collaborate on knowing more about women and about yourselves and each other. I mean, this is the process of a lifetime, and it's deeply serious. There's nothing flippant about it. There's nothing trendy about it. At some point, I was being told to use Instagram. Well, I don't. So it's to really counsel with yourself and each other. Well, I think that's really good advice. I think diversifying your education and making sure to study under professors who can introduce you to these things that you've never thought about or these more important historical figures whom you've never read will only, you know, make you a more well-rounded thinker and student and eventually teacher. And Kay, I don't know if you have any final wrapping up comments, but I think we've talked about a lot and I think we had a really good discussion. Yeah. I just wanted to ask one more thing. Gina, you could give us any recommendations of like what you're reading right now or what you think we should read right now. Get a new translation of Homer's. If you ask me what to read, I'm going to tell, suggest. Okay. Get um, the new translation by, her last name is Wilson, of Homer's Odyssey. It's the first translation by a woman. Oh, it's Emily Wilson. I don't know if you've read the Odyssey before. Read this. I think you should read. Well, tell me what you like to read. What what kinds of books? Uh, like the dialectic of sex, the sexual contract. Oh, um, I know who you should read. Absolutely, get Michelle Ledoff, D O E U F F, the sex of knowing. Okay, that sounds it's good. A, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. For as much as I think about method, get a sort of historical mystery from the 1950s by a wonderful English writer named Josephine Tay, T-E-Y, named The Daughter of Time. And it's a fun read, but I think it's also a very important book. That sounds good. And then how much of Jane Austen have you each read? Um, Oh, only a few books. I have not read any Jane Austen. Okay, well... Pardon me for saying this, but get started. <laughs> I surely will. I mean, I, I feel like I need to. I feel like I'm missing out, evidently. You are. Yeah, I am. The final book is Sappho's Poetry, translated by Mary Bernard, B-A-R-N-A-R-D. Okay. Get that. 
Wait, what is your favorite Jane Austen book? Mine is um, Persuasion, which is her last book when she's dying. Mm -hmm. But they're all fascinating. I think Mansfield Park, which is long, is very Shakespearean in the sense that it's, I mean, she writes it to be very deep and full. So I think you should read Mansfield Park. Okay. And you may not like the feet. The female hero, Fanny Price, mm -hmm. very much, at least at first. But withhold judgment. Austin, <laughs> who is an Enlightenment thinker, writes because she has no money to live on. Mm -hmm. And she is very successful as a writer because she talks to women about what they want to know and what she thinks they need to know. And she's a tremendously critical writer mm -hmm. and reader. So give yourselves to her. Okay, we will. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. You're so welcome. I'm sorry I'm not going to see you in class in a few weeks. It's going to be different, but I think we can all, if we stay positive, we can figure out a way to make the best of it. But Kay, if that's all from you, I'm okay with where we're at and i think we had an amazing discussion and gina thank you so much for everything you said and for really inspiring me um and yeah just telling us about your work and your life and things you've experienced and it's really important to hear from someone like you that's very very important to me because you know this is all about legacies yeah thank you for inspiring and sharing things so this was wonderful for me too. That's all. Then I think we can wrap up. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, whoever's listening. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. This is us signing off. Bye.